0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Last week, we started where Mark starts, and that is with the man, John the Baptist. He is... The Old Testament prophesied prophet that would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. In the Old Testament, God had given prophecies um, to certain men for things that would occur in the in the coming of the of the promised one, in the coming of the messiah. And one would be that there would be a man that would come that would prepare the way. And that is um, John the Baptist. And he engaged in a ministry of baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as he did so, he gained a a large following of, of people Yet he knew that he had been sent simply to be a pointer to the one that was coming. Mark says it this way, starting in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows that there is one who is coming. John knows his place In God's story, that he isn't the point, he's just the pointer. He doesn't know exactly when this one is coming and it doesn't know exactly who this one is until this day as he's in the wilderness at the River Jordan baptizing and this 30-year-old man who happens to be his cousin shows up. And he is the one that all of creation has been waiting for. And he's coming to John to be baptized in verse 9. That's where we pick up. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth is a small town. It was a town of around 200 people. It was really an indescript town with indescript people. If you lived in Jesus' day, Nazareth wasn't really anywhere special. And it wasn't a town from which anyone special really ever came from until now. And Mark tells us that in those days... Jesus came and he came from Nazareth of Galilee. So Nazareth is the city. Galilee is the region. Uh, I'll show you a map just so you can get an idea of, of the layout of things. We don't exactly know where on the River Jordan John the Baptist is, is baptizing. But you see the River Jordan running from um, you know, the, the south to the north um, up into the, to the Sea of Galilee. We don't know where John the Baptist is there, but what we do know is that Jesus has come from Nazareth. You see it in the, in the red, the city there, from this region known as Galilee. It is to the north of Judea, to the north of Jerusalem. It was a part of the northern kingdom of Israel that had been conquered by the Assyrians. So in in Old Testament times, um, the people of God, the the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, separated into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians. And since the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered, the Assyrians had brought in with them their pagan practices. And so what you had is... um, a sharp difference between the the south which which is where Jerusalem is that the region of Judea and the north, in between you have this this uh, area of Samaria, which is uh, viewed as sort of the the, the uh, half Jews where Jews had intermarried. And, um, and so what you have in the south, you have Jews who look to the north in a negative light because in the north, there's lots of pagan practices. The north is, is full of people from other nations, from other nationalities. Galilee, in particular, as you can see, sort of sits right in the middle of of all these other nations, all these other areas. It is at the crossroads, really, of the nations. And Mark tells us, now this man Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee has come. And what we see in this is... In this moment, the savior of the nations is coming from the nations. He is the savior of the world. He is the one that has come to save the world. And he's come from a a region that is, is pagan. The crossroads of the nations to begin his ministry to the nations to bring the nations to God. And Mark tells us, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And this moment of his baptism is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is around 30 years of age. And this is the moment, this is the place, this is the time where God in his Knowledge and plan has decided that this is now when Jesus would begin his public ministry, and his public ministry begins at his baptism. If Jesus had a following at this point, we do not know it, but it seemed, at least for the moment, that this was a, baptized, a baptism like any other baptism. But John quickly realized it wasn't. And then everybody else, I believe, quickly realized that it wasn't. Because his baptism was followed by three miraculous signs. But before we get to those, we need to spend some time talking about why exactly Jesus was baptized. Remember... John's ministry, his baptism, is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So people are coming to John, and they are, the scriptures tell us, they are confessing their sins... They're repenting from their sins. That's just, that's, that's a word that means they're turning from their sin. They're turning from their way of life. They're making the decision. They're making the, the, the decision in that moment to say, I am turning away from my sin and I'm turning towards God for forgiveness. That's what repentance is. And so they're coming to John, they're confessing their sins, they're repenting of their sins, they're receiving forgiveness from God, and they're being baptized. Because this is how you receive forgiveness from God. You receive forgiveness from God by repenting of your sins in faith. When you come before God and confess to him that you are a sinner, incapable of saving yourself... And that your sin has separated you from a perfect, holy God. And you repent of your sins. You turn from your sins and your way of life. And you turn to God in faith. That's the moment that God gives forgiveness. And then in response to this, all of these people are coming, repenting of their sins, receiving God's forgiveness... And in response to that, they're being, they're being baptized in, in the Jordan River. So here is, is Jesus. But he's different than everybody else. Because he has no sins to confess. He has no sins to repent of. He is not in need of forgiveness. He is, in this moment, as he had always been perfectly and completely holy there is no need for repentance there is no need for forgiveness there is no need and John realizes this and this is why Matthew tells us that John was hesitant to baptize Jesus this is what Matthew says and Uh, The Parallel account, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Right? John gets it. Like, you're the greater one. You're the perfect one. John realizes, I'm a sinner in need of repentance and forgiveness and faith. You're the one that gives forgiveness. I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me to be baptized? This is not right. Verse 15. But Jesus answered him and said, "Let it be so now, for this for thus it is fitting For us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist consents and baptizes Jesus. So, why was Jesus baptized? Well, we learn a little of the reason why in this text from Matthew. Matthew records Jesus telling John, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized to you? Because in his baptism there was a fulfillment of all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Because that's the question I'm, I'm asking. Like, what does that mean, a fulfillment of all righteousness? Because that can be difficult to understand. I think the, the the key word here is this word of fulfillment. That there are there are things prophesied and things promised in the Old Testament that were to be fulfilled, were to be completed in what we have as the New Testament, as an evidence of what God is doing, God's stamp, and the people of God, right? And so Jesus comes to John to say, John, I've got to be baptized by you because in me being baptized by you, what we're doing together is we're fulfilling the Old Testament. We're we're fulfilling what God had promised would take place because... Old Testament prophecy had prophesied that there would be one who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's the first step, right? And so for a Jew to understand who the Messiah is, a Jew would be looking for the one who was promised to come. And so Jesus is saying, John, I'm here so that you can baptize me, so that they can know you are the promised one. That would prepare the way. He is in this moment. Solidifying John's role. As the one prophesied to prepare the way. And in doing that. What's he doing? He's solidifying the fact that he is. The promised one. They're fulfilling all the righteous requirements. Of the Old Testament. Jesus is validating what John. Was doing and who John was, and in doing so, he's validating his own place as the Messiah. You're the one that's come to prepare the way for me, and the way that I am, Jesus, validating your ministry as a fulfillment of the Old Testament is by fulfilling all righteousness and being baptized by you, John. So that's one reason why Jesus was baptized. Another reason is because his baptism is evidence that the one who would come as Messiah, as Savior, would come in humility and be a servant of God. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 42, starting in verse one, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is, the, this is messianic prophecy of God saying that he would send a servant... And he would uphold him. He would be chosen of God. God's soul would delight in him. He would put his spirit on him. He would bring um, forth from him justice to the nations. And then there's this description of the promised Messiah. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick. He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now that's language that we don't use in our day. It's very poetic language of a breezed rude and a, a smoldering wick. Um, a burning wick that he will not quench out. The, the picture here, the imagery of not raising his voice in the streets, not being heard, not breaking a bruised reed. A bruised reed is a, is a plant that, that has been bruised, is, is close to breaking, and he's so kind and gentle and meek that he won't even break a bruised reed. And a smoldering wick, he won't even snuff it out. He's a kind, humble, meek servant of God. That's the prophecy of the Messiah that would come. He's not coming in grandeur. He's not coming in power. He's not coming, you know, making himself known in um, explicit ways. He's coming in humility and he's coming in meekness. And as Jesus comes forward to be baptized by John, even though he didn't need it, in that moment, he's illustrating before the people of God uh, his humility, his lowliness of mind. Isaiah 53 2 For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. His baptism is an evidence of his humility, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Another reason why Jesus is baptized is because his baptism at the beginning of his ministry served as a foreshadowing of the baptism at the end of his earthly ministry. And I want you to hang with me on this one because this one might be a little hard to to get. But Jesus tells us this. So Jesus begins his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan. And Jesus ends his earthly ministry in a baptism. In a baptism. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Wrong answer. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which, I, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. So what does that mean? What baptism is Jesus talking about? The baptism that Jesus is talking about is his baptism in death being fully immersed Into the wrath of God, covered in the sins of the world. That's his baptism. The cross was a baptism. Just as our baptism, when we are baptized, is symbolic of our death to self. That's why we do baptism by immersion. What I mean is we take you all the way under the water. Because it's a picture of us saying that we have died to ourselves. We have, by the grace of God, put to death the old self. And it's been buried. And then we're raised to new life. Just as our baptism is symbolic of our death to self, Christ's baptism in the river Jordan... Was symbolic of his eventual death and resurrection. What Jesus was doing in his baptism was he was associating himself with us, he was associating himself with sinners, and he was voluntarily placing himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his own guilt, but for our guilt. Not because he feared the wrath of God to come, but to save us from the wrath of God that was to come. His baptism by John in the river Jordan meant the cross. Symbolically, I am putting myself in the place of these sinners where they have been. And I'm doing it at the beginning of this ministry, symbolically. And at the end of this ministry, I'm doing it for real. As I die the death that's symbolic in these baptisms to take the wrath of God, to appease the sins of the world that's symbolic in these baptisms. I'm doing it in my body, in my flesh. By standing in the rivers, in whose water repentant Jews had symbolically washed away their sins, Jesus allowed that defiled water to be poured over his perfect body. What we see in the baptism of Jesus is the cross. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He died taking the full wrath of God, bringing forgiveness of sins to all who put their faith in him. That's what Jesus is doing in his baptism. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come as he is immersed in the wrath of God. He's covered in our sins. The scriptures say that not only did Jesus take on the sins of the world on his body on the cross. He in that moment became sin so that we could become righteousness. And he is there with John the Baptist, putting himself in the very place of all of these sinners because that is his ministry to come in the place for all sinners who put their faith in him. And then there is one other reason why Jesus was baptized. And John the Apostle teaches us in John chapter 1, it's not John the Baptist, different John. John chapter 1 and verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, that is John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, John says that he might be revealed to Israel. So why is John baptizing people in the River Jordan? He's doing it so that Israel, the people of God, could have revealed to them who the Messiah is, right? Because he's the pointer. And they know, they know we're looking for the, the the one who's preparing the way, the one who's pre- pointing. And so here's John in his ministry and here's Jesus and John saying, "All right everybody, this is the one. This is the one I've been preaching about. This is the one I've been preparing the way for. And I'm I'm here. I'm doing this baptism so that he can be revealed to you. And then Jesus is baptized by John because in his baptism there comes three miraculous signs that work to reveal to us that Jesus is the one." So Jesus is baptized, and in that moment, three miraculous signs reveal who he is. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, there's a lot of debate over who that he is. He saw the heavens. Here's some things we can know about that he. We can know for sure when it says he saw the heavens being opened, that the he there is Jesus. We know that for sure. That he could refer to John the Baptist. That John the Baptist saw the heavens being opened. I think it probably does. I think everybody there probably saw the heavens being torn open because Jesus is being revealed to them as who he is. Now, I wish I knew what that really looked like, don't you? Like the heavens being torn open. Like what, is, what does that look like? What does that mean? And we don't know. I mean, we can, we can speculate what that. The clouds rolled back and the sun, you know, shining down. And, and, but the, the symbolism here and, and the word use of, of the heavens being torn open is, is very significant. It's the exact same language of the veil being torn at his crucifixion. So Jesus dies on the cross and in that moment he takes the wrath of God, the punishment of sins. And for the the people of Israel, since wandering in the wilderness, there has been a place where The presence of God dwelled and a giant curtain that separated the presence of God from everybody else. And only the high priest could enter in through this veil, through this curtain. And when Jesus dies and he takes on the wrath of God and he gives forgiveness of sin, at that moment, what really happened was in the temple where the presence of God was, the veil that separated God from the rest of sinful creation was ripped, torn, violently torn. The word here... It's it's a violent word. It's ripped from top to bottom. A symbolic gesture of God saying, now my presence is not just in this place. Now my presence will indwell all who come to me in faith. And the veil is ripped. The veil is, is torn at his crucifixion. This is the same imagery of the heavens being torn open at his baptism. This is the same. This is so interesting to me. This is the same as what took place in creation. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 6, the creation account says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the he- of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under The expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. What do we see happening in creation? We see God taking the waters and separating them. And then we have an expanse of water below and an expanse of water above. So we have the water that covered the earth, and then we have the water in the heavens. And God has separated them. Literally, in creation, the sky is being torn open in creation. And now, here comes Jesus to be baptized. And in this moment, the sky is torn open. Because in this moment, it's revealed to us that in this one being baptized comes the new creation. Just as God in the work of creation separated the heavens, now God in the beginning of the ministry of the new creation, of the new covenant, separates the heavens. And they are torn open. And now there's an ushering in of a new covenant, a means of a new creation. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah's cries to God in Isaiah 64, verse one: one, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah praying out, crying to God, God, would you rend the heavens? Would you open up the heavens? And would you come down? And here in this moment, the heavens are opened and God has come in Jesus Christ. the heavens are torn open, they are opened up. And they're opened up in that moment so that we can get a glimpse into heaven and so that we can hear from God. Understand, for the world, the heavens have been shut up for 400 years. God has been silent. And now in this moment, the heavens are opened and God speaks. But before God speaks, Mark tells us that the spirit descended on him like a dove. That's miraculous sign number two. The heavens are opened and a dove descends onto Jesus. And John tells us, or, or Mark tells us, that this dove is the visible representation of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit of God takes the form of a dove. Why? Because he can. And he rests on Jesus. He rests on him. And in that moment, guess what we have? We have fulfillment. Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What happens, Isaiah 11 is fulfilled. The spirit of God comes and rests on him. Rests on him. The dove in the scriptures is imagery. And it's the imagery of newness. So where else do we see a dove in the scriptures? We see it in the the flood account. The dove is the, the evidence that the new world is ready, right? That's the evidence. The new world is ready. Noah sends out the dove. The new world, the new creation, everything was destroyed by water. It's ready. The dove signifies newness. And here comes the dove. Descending on Jesus. To signify the new Israel. The new creation, the new world. It is interestingly the same word of the spirit hovering over the deep in creation. His creation just begins, it says the spirit of God is hovering over the deep. It's the same word. And here the spirit of God comes again to rest upon the creator and the one who will usher in a new creation. Now take these two events where we see this language used. One is the, the flood account and its main character, Noah, and the other is creation and its main character, Adam. And what do we find in Jesus Christ? we find the new Noah and the new Adam. We find the the new Noah, the one that will bring salvation to the people. And we find the new Adam, the new man, who will totally and completely fulfill the law in a way that the old Adam never could. They both were foreshadows, Adam and Noah, both foreshadows of him who was to come and now he's come and he's being revealed to all of Israel. And then the last miraculous sign, God speaks. After 400 years of silence, the heavens are opened, God comes down and he speaks, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God himself speaks and seals who this man is. This man, Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, this man is God's beloved son. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a priest. He is not just a good guy. He is God's beloved son. And he wasn't made his son at his baptism. Jesus has always been God's beloved son. From eternity past and forevermore, Jesus is God's beloved son. He is by nature, by his very nature, the eternal son of God. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. Jesus has eternally existed as the beloved son of God. He's not made the son of God at his baptism. He's revealed by God. He's confirmed by God to be the son of God so that we can see and we can know this is the one that's been promised. This is the one that's been promised. And he is, you just got to keep going in Hebrew because it's too good. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. God speaks and says, he is my beloved son. Now, there is another time in the scriptures, in the gospels, where the heavens in a way are opened up and God speaks. And that is at the transfiguration of Jesus. And let's listen to what God says in Mark 9 Starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, like no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elisha and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? So he just, he didn't know what to say. We'll make some tents, all right? I could imagine being terrified. You'd be terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, the voice of God. This is My beloved son. Listen to him. So let me ask you a question. This is on two occasions in the Gospels that God has audibly spoken. And both times he said the same thing. Do you think there's a point he wants us to get? You ever think, man, if God could just audibly speak to me so I could know? You ever think that? Like, I just want to know if God, if you could just audibly speak and tell me so I could know. Guys, we've got it right here before us. God has audibly spoken and, he, and we can know. Jesus Christ is the beloved son of God. There is no other beloved son of God. Jesus Christ is it. And as the beloved son of God, he is the only one who is able to make us right with God. He is the only one who is able to bring us back to God. He is the only way to be made right before God. There is no other beloved son other than Jesus Christ. He is not a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not just a good teacher. He is the way. He and He alone is the Son of God. And He is the only one who can make an acceptable sacrifice for sins. That's why Jesus says himself in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, if you're trying to get there in a way outside of him, you'll never make it if you're trying to get there through your own righteousness, through your own goodness, through your own morality, if you're trying to get there by being a good mom or a good dad or a good husband or a good wife, if you think you can earn it, you never can earn it. Your sins are too great. But there is one who was sinless, the beloved son of God. There is one way in Jesus Christ, and he made a way. And it started at his baptism, a foreshadowing of what was to come as he's baptized in the wrath of God in the sins of the world so that we could by faith be made right before God. And here's what's miraculous. It is through God's beloved son that we can be made sons. See, he was never made a son. He's always been a son. But it's through the eternal son that we, by God's grace, can be made sons and daughters. And he's the only one that can offer that in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, that's, that's now, right? In those days. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave to your sin, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the imagery of what's taking place in the baptism of Jesus Christ. What we see before us is the sinless, perfect, eternal son of God. Placing himself among sinners a foreshadowing of the end of his earthly ministry where he hangs in the place of sinners. We see the Spirit of God descending and dwelling on him because he has the authority now to send the Spirit of God to dwell in us. And we hear the voice of God speak, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now each of us, by faith and repentance of sins, can be made sons of God and hear God say, this is my son. This is my son. That's what we see in the baptism. That's what God offers us through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Adoption as sons. As he made a way, taking the wrath of God on himself on the cross. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.